Welcome to another edition of And Another Thing, the podcast that continues to make headlines across the nation. My name is Jody Jenkins. And I am Tony Clement. And we are so excited to get down to business on another episode. I'm pumped to hear from our guest who you're going to introduce shortly. And we got to get some housekeeping out of the way. Big shout out to our presenting sponsor, John Mutton and the team at Municipal Solutions. He's like a globetrotter right now. He's like he's, uh, he's in Zagreb right now. Yes. Yeah. So we appreciate the support from Municipal Solutions. You can find out more by going to municipalsolutions.ca uh, online. And I know, Tony, you have some details as well on them and also another one of our proud sponsors. Yes, uh, Jody. Municipal Solutions, great for business development, for market analysis, energy and infrastructure advancement, strategic planning, stakeholder and government relations, and public policy development. They're a very busy shop, and we really appreciate that Municipal Solutions is our presenting sponsor. We also have as a sponsor MerchantFreedom.ca, who are your trusted experts on credit card processing and merchant services. They're good for low rates, fast and easy processing, no hidden terms and fees, and e-commerce solutions. They've got a special through and another thing podcast for any veteran entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs who are veterans uh, of uh, the Canadian Armed uh, Services. Uh, there's no setup fee. There's no cancellation fee, no contracts. So they do that through virtuous payments. And as an additional sweetener, they are willing to do a free audit. Uh, this is for everybody of your existing setup to ensure that you're paying the fees rate you think you are because some providers offer a great service rate, but it only applies to some of your sales. So merchantfreedom.ca is in your corner and we thank them for being a sponsor. We continue to not be affected here at the podcast by the restrictions that are being imposed uh, throughout the nation. Uh, they have tried to lock us down many a time, but Tony and I simply refuse. Uh, this podcast will continue uh, unless uh, unless Patrick Brown gets his health unit people on us. Yeah. They seem to be they seem to be hardcore. So if he, <laughs> they are if hardcore. Win, yeah, if he gets wind that you're in my bubble, Tony, I, I have a feeling he's going to send them after us. He is uh, he is being hardcore. They've had a few issues in Brampton, as you know. That's one of the hot spots in Ontario in Brampton, Ontario, and they had to shut down. I think there was a Diwali celebration going on as, at a Sikh temple, and they, the police were called out. They found several hundred people there. It was not a good scene. So uh, things, are, uh, things are pretty dire in Brampton right now, unfortunately. Well, our guest today, I believe, is in his own bubble. Like He has his own bubble of like several provinces, so we're pretty excited to have him on. I'm going to let you introduce our guest today, Tony. Well, it is our pleasure to have on And Another Thing podcast, the Honorable Scott Bryson has joined us. He is currently Vice Chair of Investment and Corporate Banking at the BMO Capital Markets. Uh, he, he is coming to us from Montreal. He was formerly the Member of Parliament for King's Hants in Nova Scotia, of course, a former public works minister. And uh, interestingly for me, he was my immediate successor as president of the Treasury Board. When the Harper government was out and the Trudeau government was in, he took over as president of the Treasury Board. So without further ado, let us welcome on uh, And Another Thing podcast, the Honorable Scott Bryson. Scott, great to have you on the program. Welcome, Scott. My pleasure, uh, Tony, and uh, great to be, be with you and, and Jody today and uh, looking forward to our chat. 
I'm looking forward to it too. First of all, uh, how's life uh, during COVID for you and your family? Everybody keeping health and safety. I hope uh, safe. I hope. Well, our, our our daughters are six now. They actually turned seven in February, and uh, they they had a we had a terrific summer inside the Atlantic bubble in rural Nova Scotia and our. Uh, home in Cheveria on our farm there. We were there for three months uh, during that, that period, and uh, I worked remotely, uh, as are all my partners uh, at BMO Capital Markets. Pretty much everyone's working remotely. And uh, then my daughters uh, returned to school, which is actually in Montreal, where we have a home close to where Maxim grew up. And uh, so we are now... Uh, Sadly, outside of the more secure and and uh, uh, and, and and safer um, uh, Atlantic bubble uh, in Montreal uh, for the school year, mm-hmm. and and not not able to fly back and forth like like to our place in Nova Scotia. Uh, this was the first time in my life I wasn't in at our home and or at her place in Nova Scotia for Thanksgiving. And we're hoping, hoping, hoping uh, that somehow there's a slight uh, easing of restrictions that might permit re-entry for uh, Christmas. Uh, but the numbers are not looking good, Tony. Yeah. You have experience as a minister during the SARS uh, crisis in Ontario. And... Uh, it's a, it's a challenging time, and and we can't complain too much. I mean, our family is safe and and healthy, and uh, I'm 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 an off, awfully concerned uh, about a lot of other families who are not quite as uh, as, as as lucky. Well, uh, listen, it's uh, we're all uh, concerned about our families. I'm you're you're not alone in that boat. Does it feel weird to be in Montreal? Is there a feeling of dread at all, or are people just uh, sort of? Uh, going along with life as, as they possibly, uh, to the best of their ability in, in this difficult time? We see all the restaurants uh, are closed. Uh, stores are, uh, you know, most stores are open, but but you really don't have a lot of in-person uh, interaction. No. We are, uh, it's our, ourselves and our children, our our kids go to school in the morning with masks on. Uh, the school has taken a lot of precautions, and the protocols seem very strong. Um, and they come back. So, I mean, the one, and the, you know, you, I'm cautious to even say this, but I mean, the one thing I have to say about COVID is we are having, and certainly I am having, more face time with my family and my children uh, than. Uh, I had previously certainly more Tony than when I was a cabinet minister in the federal government. Um, but I, you know, we, we, you know, the, this isolation uh, is actually, and I've, I've heard this from other colleagues and friends as well. Uh, it is resulting in, in a lot more time with our immediate families. And, and, and they haven't, they haven't kicked you out yet. So that's a good sign. Well, the only the only uh, uh, people in Canada, uh, or the only person in Canada, more anxious to get uh, uh, business travel resumed uh, than say K 
Kaelin Rovanesco would at Air Canada would be uh, my spouse, Maxime St. Pierre, <laughs> yeah. who would be quite happy to see business travel return to, to some semblance of normalcy. Um, you know, the, the idea of uh, me being around quite as much, I, I, I'm told that I'm kind of intense to be around all the time. I'm not sure. If, uh, that seems highly unfair. I, I, don't, I don't believe that. Not for a second. <laughs> hey, but you, I do want to talk about um, your life now versus time in politics, because we've both made that uh, transition, of course. And um, you, you have a different, as you just mentioned, a different uh sort of work-life balance than you had during politics. Uh, what advice would you give to aspiring politicians or even current politicians on the work-life balance thing? Well, first, firstly, you know, I never complained when I was in politics about the work-life balance uh, situation because I chose it. Uh, and in fact, uh, Maxim was, was well aware of the demands and that's, that's, that sort of thing. Um, and I remember getting asked by uh, journalists sometimes who wanted to do interviews on, it must be, you know, with the general theme being, it must be tough to be a cabinet minister with, with young kids at that time, toddlers, Rose and Claire were only toddlers. Um, and uh, I actually didn't feel comfortable feeling that sorry for myself because, yes, we were, um, you know, two parents uh, with incomes out, you know, with work outside of the home and demanding careers and two little children. Um, so that, that was naturally challenging. But I thought we were pretty lucky, actually, compared to, say, a working family, working couple with two people on minimum wage jobs trying to support a family. Um, and the, the work-life ba balance pressures on us were significant, but compared to a lot of people who are uh, lower middle income, who uh, both work or single parents who are balancing, uh, taking care of children and uh, work at the same time. So I've never felt comfortable feeling sorry for myself on that basis, Tony. Um, but, you know, it, it was, you know, it was, a, it was challenging, but my gosh, Tony, I think of the, uh, the people who are struggling to get by on, on, uh, you know, barely making, if you know, a living wage, and particularly in the COVID environment and post-COVID, Tony, one of the things that worries me the most is that COVID has the potential. In fact, it seems to be resulting uh, quite, quite uh, significantly in uh, deepening inequality. And so people who were vulnerable before COVID are being rendered more vulnerable by COVID. And a lot of us who were doing pretty well before COVID are, are still doing well. And I'm, you know, I'm worried about this, the impact on a lot of people who were already struggling. Um, and, and particularly as we see uh, important technological adaptation and adoption in, uh, as a result of COVID or being certainly accelerated by COVID and the disruption inherent in that, we've got to make sure we have people's backs. Well, I mean, this is one of the things I, I know, I know we were, I was being a bit jocular about uh, Brampton earlier in the show, but Brampton is a working class city. 
And so people don't have the, you know, when you say stay at home, if you possibly can, they don't have the, really the, the opportunity or, or the option to stay at home. A lot of, a lot of those kinds of workers. So it does impact different communities in different ways. This, this is something I'm sure, uh, you were, uh, aware of while being in, in, uh, in the cabinet. And, uh, you know, there's, there's been a lot of writing, including Pickett, Pickety, the economist about, uh, increasing gap between rich and poor. Is that something that still sort of animates your thoughts as well then? Absolutely, Tony. I, I don't think you can have a sustainably prosperous uh, economy, an economy that grows on a sustainable basis uh, without people having an opportunity to progress and for their kids to progress. I actually think that uh, uh, a strong middle class and having an opportunity to become part of it is really, really important. Uh, so social mobility, uh, I think, is, is, is really an, uh, an integral part of uh, economic prosperity. And so uh, while I don't believe in, you know, uh, legislating measures to, to try to achieve equality of outcome, I think equality of opportunity is really essential. And I think that that equality of opportunity is probably stronger in Canada than it is in a lot of places. Right. We have, a, you know, we, we do have a strong emphasis on our public education system and on our public health care system. It's not, they're not perfect, but they, but they are good. Um, and, and, uh, which is not to say they couldn't be better and we shouldn't strive to make them better. But uh, I do think that equality of opportunity is critically important. And I, I got to tell you, Tony, I, I, I didn't think uh, about it as much uh, as, you know, before I had kids. When I had kids, mm -hmm. um, it really gave me pause because it, it, when, when Rose and Claire were born, I was a member of Parliament for King's Hands. And... You know, being a member of parliament, as you know, you were a member of parliament. You worked hard as a member of parliament. And that interface with my constituents, uh, and in a lot of cases, people I grew up with, Tony, mm -hmm. um, and seeing how people were struggling and understanding when you're representing people as a member of parliament, um, if you're doing your job and meeting with people, you actually... Uh, learn a lot about the struggles they're facing. And you take that to, to Ottawa and you take that to the House of Commons. You take it to a caucus room. You take it to a cabinet room. I've always, I've always thought that you've got to bleed for your constituents, that uh, you've, you, you've, you've, uh, your empathy has to cut so deep that you're bleeding for them. I, I really do believe that. I've never heard it put that way, Tony, but, but, uh, but the members of Parliament who are around for a long time really do um, feel at one with their constituents and and desperately try to help them with 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 individual issues community issues and broadly and and you know whenever I, I, I look at Rose and Claire um, I think of other people's kids as well and I, I, it's a reminder that you know we're really lucky Rose and Claire are really lucky and there's a lot of work to be done 
to help other kids and other families have a chance. And I think being a member of Parliament, that was one of the most wonderful parts of the experience, Tony, because you, you do have a, an understanding of the struggles the people face. Hey, I know... Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll never forget that. Hey, I know uh, Jody will want to jump in, but just one more question before he does. Um, uh, I, you and I have talked a little bit about this, about the toxic toxicity in politics these days about how uh, it uh, it is so personal and uh, the the intensity of it uh, the negative intensity of it, of it uh, perhaps driven by social media is very different from when you and I started in politics any thoughts or observations on that now that you're out of politics well tony you're you're a smart guy you're a guy who's always been interested in ideas and, you know, right now we're in a, uh, a world where the challenges facing governments, the challenges facing businesses are, or, or individuals or families, the challenges facing governments are actually today more complicated and, and complex than they've ever been. And now is the time, uh, more so than probably any at any point in our history, when we desperately need really good people in public life and smart people and decent people. But it's at this exact moment that we have one of the most sulfuric and toxic environments uh, for people to enter public life. And the, the negative perspective that people have towards politics, politicians, and political institutions is really erosive. Uh, to democracy, and frankly, politicians are part of the problem. Mm. Um, I I want to puke every time I hear somebody say, "Well, such so and so is a professional politician," and and you know we we don't want uh, that. We we want someone you know who's comes from somewhere else who doesn't have that baggage of being a professional politician. And when I hear that. Uh, you know, I, I think of, well, okay, if I wanted a triple bypass, um, I would not apply the same logic. I would not say that uh, I, you know, I, I don't want to get that uh, cardiac surgeon, that cardiologist uh, uh, who, who's done nothing but this for 30 years to do it because I'd like someone who takes a different approach. I'd like someone, maybe a podiatrist, to look at my heart. Um it wouldn't make any sense. And frankly, it doesn't make any sense to say it about politics. I think we need a mix of people in public life, some new and some people have been around. But I really think that politics is a tough business, that you need people who understand uh, and are willing to devote the time to understanding uh, politics and government and institutions. And uh, that it takes a certain skill set. And that skill set Nobody's born with it. It's like any other profession. You work hard, you develop it, you get better uh, over time. And so I actually but, but, you know, think that it's a, uh, the demonization of politics writ large um, has actually uh, over time made it more difficult for us to retain and keep good people in it. And, and I think we've got to, we've got to really, um, reboot uh, the relationship between politics uh, and people in a way that 
people understand the importance of members of parliament, of legislators, uh, and political institutions. I mean, on the positive side, Americans just elected someone who is a career politician who you can agree or disagree with his individual policies over the years, but he's a serious person. Uh, who, by most accounts, all accounts, I think, is, is actually a decent person. Right, right. Uh, but who believes that public life and, uh, is important and, and, you know, and incidentally has over his career, uh, Joe Biden has worked across the floor with Republicans. And uh, I'd love to see a day, Tony, when we could get back to a situation in Ottawa when there could be less partisanship. I mean, it's... I don't think any political party has a monopoly on virtue or intelligence. And I think there are good people in every political party. And I tell newly elected members of parliament, don't, you know, drink some of the, uh, drink some of the Kool-Aid, but don't drink all of it. <laughs> that's, and, a, that's good uh, advice. Yeah. And, and the questions, and I see it in the House of Commons, that they usually get their newest members of parliament up on their hind legs to ask the dirtiest, most personal type questions. And, and I always tell them, look, you know, regardless of what the leader's office is telling you to do, just remember uh, in, in how you're going to feel in 10 years or 15 years questioning someone's personal integrity like that because once you discover that they're actually a pretty good person. Right. Right. No, uh, that's, uh, that's the same advice I give too. So that's, that's very interesting. Jody, do you want to jump in? Yeah, I was just going to quickly say, Scott, I know you mentioned American politics there and I have, I've got another question after this, but it just sparked my, my thoughts there. And, you know, you must've followed the American election. Were you surprised, um, at how well Joe Biden did with, uh, that age demographic? I think it was between 150 to 200 years old. <laughs> Well, actually, I, I have been impressed with the degree to which he was able to engage young folks. Uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, there was actually, I mean, and, and from a positive perspective, a lot of Americans voted in this election. It was amazing, the participation. Oh, it was incredible. And yeah. uh, the funny thing is, you know, the, the Democrats, you know, they had this, this focus on, and quite, quite rightly on, you know, vote, uh, telling everybody to vote. And like, um, you know, I, I, look, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a liberal, so I, I can say this in a fairly self-deprecating manner. Um, you know, the problem was sometimes with liberals is that we just assume that, uh, because of the fact that we have a monopoly on virtue, that when we tell people to go out and vote, that naturally everyone will vote for us. Um, I don't think Democrats or liberals ever consider the possibility that when you tell someone to go out and vote, they'll vote for anybody else. And what we actually saw in reality is uh, more people voting Democrat than ever before, and also more people voting for uh, the Republican candidate, President Trump. So, I mean, there was a hell, hell, hell of a lot of, uh, of uh, Democratic participation this time, which I would view in general as a positive thing. It's never a bad thing. You're right. Jody, that's that was the only question I had. Okay, I've got, <laughs> I've got a question for you. What would you tell your twenty-year-old self? I would tell my 
20 year old self to study longer than I did. Number one, uh, I have an undergraduate degree in finance and I was so busy at 20 running my own business. I started a business, uh, and while I was a university student rent, renting fridges to students, by the time I graduated, I had over 1,500 appliances at 12 campuses and had actually a very good business. I didn't, I didn't realize that. So were these, uh, were these no, bar, bar fridges or what, what were they? No, 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 no. For the, <laughs> students, they, the students called them bar fridges and the parents called them snack fridges. <laughs> uh, we, we, we actually had two brochures, uh, one was for students, and it had pictures of um, uh, Labatt's and, and uh, Tenpenny and Keese and Moosehead and Coors and things like that. And, and then the other was for parents, and it had pictures of milk and yogurt. <laughs> um, and, uh, but the, uh, uh, no, no, there were the little uh, mini bar fridges. Uh, when uh, I was 19, I bought 180 of them and uh, went out and rented them out to students and then grew the business from there. So, and so you were the fridge, the fridge king of Chicago. <laughs> I, was the, I was the, I was the fridge magnet. Okay. You're the fridge magnet. Okay. But, uh, but, the, the, uh, uh, but, but no, but looking back at that time, I mean, I can't regret things because I mean, I was, I was and am and will always be a little entrepreneurial. It's kind of genetic. Um, but, uh, that being the case, uh, I would have stayed in school longer. And, uh, just before I entered politics, I see, I mean, I'd spent a few years in New York in, in the nineties and I was just about to do my MBA. Uh, when I was, uh, 28, uh, I decided it was time to do my MBA. And then, uh, uh, I was just going through that process and, uh, Jean Charest, uh, you'll recall, was leader of the Progressive Conservative Party. Yes. Uh, uh, was rebuilding a party with two members at that time, he and Elsie Wayne. Elsie Wayne, that's and right. I, I was asked to run for the nomination in King's Hands, and I was living and working in New York, but I built my home in uh, the community I grew up in, Warren, Nova Scotia. And I ended up, uh, you know, saying, okay, you know what? I always wanted to do that, but I never intended on doing it until I was in my 50s. Right now, Tony, I'm 53. I'm about the age that I always thought I would enter public life. Incredible. Because, because I always thought I'd enter in my 50s. And and in, and and uh, I think there's, there's real benefit to people like you and, and me getting in younger. And throwing that passion and energy and curiosity into it, but I also think we benefit from people who enter later in in life as well, and still taking it seriously as a profession. But uh, you know, it's it's I, I would I would I would tell people to uh, get more education um, and to make sure you do. You know, I I, I think it's important to establish your business or or. or or professional bona fides in other areas, right? Prior to politics, yeah. No, I, I always, I think, I think that's, I think that's important. But politics is so darn seductive, Tony. Once you get into it, absolutely. Like Tell California, yeah, yeah. No, that's true. And and I, I always encourage people, staffers that I had uh, in politics, to go out, not just work on the hill or work at Queens Park. Go out and and have other experiences. Uh, you know, build. Uh, an understanding of life 
uh, outside of the political realm. I think that's so important. And uh, you're right. I mean, there's many different paths to politics, Scott. Uh, but you can go in early, uh, as you and I did, or you can you can you can build a, a whole set of experiences and and go in later. And either either one is valid. Even when I went in, I'd already run some businesses and had had a legal practice and and uh, it had you know that 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 kind of thing. It wasn't it wasn't straight out of university. But at the same time, you can you can add a lot more to politics later on in life too. Yeah, that's right, Tony. And I think that, that similarly, when I was in my 20s, I was doing business all over the U.S. I was was involved in having built businesses. Uh, and, you know, that, that gave me some experience that benefited me in public life. I mean, I don't really regret having entered public life I, I, early in my life. I, I turned 30 in my first election. How old were you, Tony, when you first ran? Uh, when I first ran, I was 33. 33. So uh, in, in this same ballpark. So we had a little bit of professional experience, or actually quite a bit prior to that, um, and entered public life. I think that's preferable than somebody who who, who doesn't uh, do anything but, uh, for, you know, basically a university into public life. Uh, and, and, and there are cases of that. I, th- I think there, uh, it's good to have some life experience outside of public life. But I, I gotta tell you, the, having entered it at 30 and you at 33, we applied ourselves, uh, individually and in our own realms to t- taking politics seriously, government seriously. Uh, and our jobs as legislators and representatives seriously. Right. And uh, I loved my work as a legislator. Uh, I loved my work serving constituents. And, you know, there's this sort of notion that has emerged in Ottawa that there's only 30-some good jobs to have, and they're all in a cabinet. Yeah. And people spend their lives rehearsing for cabinet, and some of them never get to, to do it. Right. And, in fact, there's some fantastic members of parliament who never get to serve in a cabinet. Exactly. And one of the advice, or the one, one piece of advice I, I give to members of parliament who are new to this is stop auditioning for cabinet and focus on being a really great representative for your constituents and on a, being a really serious legislator, working hard at committees, developing ideas, uh, helping support the policy process in your party, uh, and, you know, being creative and curious, being respectful and building bridges across parties. I mean, all of these things uh, uh, are included in the advice that I provide for free uh, <laughs> to people who are starting off or considering it. Uh, because uh, I think actually being a legislator in and of itself it, it, it is, is, is immensely rewarding um and and purposeful and and i i really wish we would go back to that where we understood the importance of members parliament i think we should have institutional reform that makes parliament uh that that changes parliament to make members of parliament more independent tony um I, well that's actually uh, the the british system if you look at westminster a lot more independence of MPs than in Canada. 
Totally, and and I think that's a good thing because if you're if you're a member of parliament, an intelligent member of parliament, you you have ideas and thoughts uh, that that have merit uh, and and need to be heard. They need to be heard in caucus rooms. Uh, they need to be heard uh, in in your constituency. They need to be heard on the floor of the House of Commons, and it can't be just a partisan echo center. Echo chamber where, you know, basically you just hear people repeating what their leader's office or PMO has told them. You don't. You don't ask people once they get elected to check their brain at the door for four years. Exactly. Um, and 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 uh, so I, I think we would we would actually have better politics if uh, we strengthened committees. Like one of the things I'd like to see, Tony, is. As uh, increasing the resources to committees, I right. think committee chairs, parliamentary committee chairs, should actually be paid the same as cabinet ministers. Mm. Um, and part of that is simply establishing, you know, there's a certain, you know, people, uh, uh, you know, apply a certain uh, sort of prestige to certain things, and and. As he paying them the same would would elevate the perception of that their roles. I would uh, I would also increase resources for committees for research, um, and and I would uh, you know cease what has been a corrosive practice of committees being treated as branch plants of ministers' offices. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with committees passing reports that uh, are not always uh, uh, in agreement with government policy. Uh, under Brian Mulroney, Don Blenkern was, uh, as you'll recall, uh, was uh, uh, chairman of the Finance Committee. Right. And, he, and as chairman, that he, he was able to uh, work with that committee across uh, the uh, the aisle, as it were, with uh, all parties, and they produced unanimous reports, some of which were critical of government policy. Now, can you imagine in, in the context of the time that you and I served, if, if that was done? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and and, uh, and frankly, I, I think you know the uh, we should when people get elected, they they should have. Uh, training and education on the role of the member of parliament. Uh, and unfortunately, that's something that's talked about in opposition, but very few leaders' offices, when they become PMOs, uh, want to do that. Scott Bryson, we're going to have to do a part two because uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff there, but we are unfortunately uh, at the end of our time. I just want to thank you very much for taking the time to be on our program. It was very interesting to hear your views and uh, some of your reminiscences. Right, Jody? Yes. Sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) You're still there? (laughs) Oh, yeah. I'm still here. (laughs) Uh, Well, I I think our guest has given us an interesting show. Interesting show. And we're we're looking forward to getting some some listener feedback, as we usually do. But uh, this has been a real treat. Thank you so much, Scott Bryson. Yeah, thanks, Scott. All the best, Tony, and thanks, thanks, uh, thanks, Jody, and uh, we'll see. Uh, it's uh, I, I got to tell you, having two 
two people in their 70s running for president of the United States. It gives people like Tony and I <laughs> reassurance that there's lots of runway for us. Oh, yeah, yeah. We're not, we're not done yet. <laughs> we, we, we are just, we're just getting warmed up, Tony. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll be, we'll be, uh, we'll be uh, a ticket. The Scott Brace and Tony Clement ticket. There you go. (laughs) Uh, Oh gosh. Uh, Let me, let me, uh, let me, let me, I'm sure Maxim will be just thrilled with this idea. I can't wait. Okay. All right, buddy. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Lots of great insight there with Scott Bryson and you're right, Tony, that could literally be, another episode if we keep him talking we could do a part two maybe even a part three well he's got a lot of ideas it's great to see that uh, when you're out of parliament you can still have some good ideas and but the most revelatory thing for me was his uh his time as the bar fridge king uh, that yes uh, the fridge magnet as he's he the fridge magnet <laughs> he's like <laughs> well that's what we get in our show we get all these little insights that you never you never hear from other shows so i'm very pleased to have scott as part of that now don't forget to check out our website and another thing, podcast.ca as well. Municipal Solutions, our presenting sponsor, and we're also proud to have the support of Merchant Freedom. You can find all the links to their website and their information on our website again, and another thing, podcast.ca. We're going to do this again in seven days. Tony, enjoy the rest of your week, and you we bet. will talk soon. You got it.